Come with me in your Bible this morning to John chapter 12, John's Gospel and the 12th chapter. And it's a passage where um, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The Passover is, is about to be implemented, the Passover festivities, the feasts, the, the celebrations that were implemented back in the days of Moses when the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt took place. And Jesus was destined to die at Passover. And so in John chapter 12, he is preparing for that moment that he was born for. And he uh, makes his way to Jerusalem. He comes to Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He dines there with Lazarus. The chief priests are plotting to not just kill Jesus but also kill Lazarus because um, many of the Jews had chosen to follow Jesus as a result of that miracle where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he arrives in Jerusalem and we come to this little passage in uh, John chapter 12 that says this in verse 20, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they said to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. You know, I live with a very, very strong and growing conviction that the second coming of Jesus is far more imminent than many in the church today realize. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3, Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, he said, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go now through the cross to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, he said, I will come again. I will come back. I will return and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. The angels on the Mount of Olives, as the disciples stared into heaven and watched him ascend out of sight, said, Men of Galilee, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warned us that no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. This is a really interesting passage and something that I think we need to sober up a little and read, particularly in this political climate, this economic climate, this social climate, the, the deterioration of the heart and soul of humanity that is, is just going from one level of depravity to another. This is a sobering passage of Scripture where Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, when the Son of God, when, when the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior comes for a second time, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People were enjoying life. 
People weren't concerned about spiritual matters. People weren't concerned about eternity. People weren't concerned about their future, the destiny of their, their soul, their heart. As it was in the days of Noah, people were partying, enjoying banquets. They were going to nightclubs in their day. They were, they were just enjoying life and becoming lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And right up until the time Noah entered the boat and then Jesus said these sobering words, people didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. No one knows the hour Jesus is returning. No one knows the day. No one knows the time. Many people have tried over generations to predict the time. They've read the times and the seasons and they've determined through their calculations that, that yes, it'll come on this time or this year. Many believe when the Y2K bug hit, which didn't hit by the way, but when it hit, Jesus would return. But no one knows the day or the hour. But Jesus said, read the seasons and the times and you'll see and know that when these things start to happen, my, my coming will be near. Get your heart ready because it'll come like a thief in the night. And I think there is a, a slumber that has crept over the church today where there is a spiritual numbness that, that people are no longer acutely aware. And when I first got saved, it was like Jesus could come at any moment. And there was an acute awareness and people lived their life watching and waiting and expecting. And that was 40 years ago. And it can be so easy that if you were one from my generation who got saved to actually begin to slumber, to begin to slacken off a little and say, well, you know, it, it didn't happen then. We all thought it would. And, you know, and, and, you know, I remember back then thinking things like, well, don't come yet. I want to get married. Don't come yet. I want to have kids. I want to enjoy that part of life. To, to, you know, come by all means, but can you just hold it off till I get married? And now I'm a grandfather. And he still hasn't come. And I think sometimes those, those times, those experiences that we all go through can bring upon us a, a sense of, of a lack of awareness. And then suddenly Jesus said in those moments where we slacken off, the thief will come. It'll be like the, the virgins that, that didn't take enough oil and the oil ran out. They were, they, were, they were enthusiastic for a while. They were passionate for a while. They watched the, the horizon for a while, expecting the bridegroom to come. But when he didn't come, the, the, their oil was burning down and they weren't replenishing. They didn't bring enough. They didn't stay focused. And then suddenly the bridegroom comes as they had to go away and get more oil and they missed I think that kind of spirit has crept into the church today. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, there'll be that sense of pleasure and, and excitement. And I'm living life for myself. And there'll be a self-absorption that will come into the hearts of people. And not just people, but the church. That will cause us to slumber. And, and all of a sudden, like a thief in the night, he'll come suddenly and we won't know what's happened until it's too late. I believe there is a demonically inspired complacency blanketing much of Christianity today that has churchgoers. And there's a big difference between churchgoers and Christ followers. A big difference between those that go to church and those that follow Jesus. 
When Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you, he was talking to church people. They said, did we not cast out demons in your name? But unsaved people don't do that. Did we not prophesy in your name? Unsaved people don't do that. Did we not do these things in your name? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. There was no relationship. There was no connection. There was no intimacy. There was no sense of you hearing my voice and following my call and doing what I've called you to do. But we were in church every Sunday. Yeah, but you didn't know me. You were in church, but you weren't in me. There's a big difference between going to church and following Jesus. But I believe there is a a demonically blanketed, sense of complacency over God's house today that, that has churchgoers unfocused upon the eternal and the critical and so consumed with the tangible and the temporal that under such conditions that many will be shockingly caught unaware when the thief comes in the night. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy in his Second letter, chapter 3, he said, But know this, Timothy, that in the last days perilous times will come. Perilous meaning dangerous times, risky times, tense moments that could actually bring injury to you, Timothy. Intense moments that could bring even destruction to you, Timothy. It could cause you to lose your faith, Timothy. It could cause you to lose your footing in the Word of God, Timothy. Know this, Timothy. In other words, be sober and be alert. That, that perilous times are, are coming. And he said, in those times, men will be lovers. He's, you've got to understand this. He's not talking about the world here. He's talking about the church. And what I'm about to read to you, he's talking about people like you and I sitting in a congregation every Sunday. Men will be lovers of themselves, caught up with their own image caught up with their own importance, caught up with their ministry giftings, caught up with their, their, their anointing, caught up with looking good, feeling good, presenting well, having the, the appearance of, wow, he's got spirituality like I've never seen before. He's talking about the church. They will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, people chasing the dollar rather than chasing the kingdom. People who, who seize opportunities to succeed and get ahead and, and you know the kingdom of God goes on the back burner. The following of Jesus goes on the back burner. Meanwhile, Jesus is, is pleading, seek first my kingdom and all these things will just follow you anyway. But I believe it's a demonically inspired strategy to try and get followers of Jesus, to try and get people who are planted in the house of God, uprooted, unstable, so that they, they become people that shift their focus onto the temporal, onto the tangible, rather than on the, the eternal and the critical. He said they will be lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Yes, even in the church, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. Slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure. Rather, this is the church he's talking about. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, this is the thing that clinches it. They will have a form of godliness, a facade of Christ-likeness. Their words will say one thing, but their heart will be a... Totally different ballgame altogether. People who are so unfocused on the eternal and the critical and they're people that are not realizing what is going to happen until the flood came 
and swept them all away. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, in the Passion Translation, Peter says, contrary to man's perspective, contrary to man's perspective, the Lord is not late with his promise to return, as some measure lateness, but rather his delay in coming simply reveals his loving patience toward you because he does not want any to perish but all to come to repentance. The only reason Jesus hasn't returned is his heart for people who are lost outside the kingdom. He wants people to be saved. He wants people to come to the knowledge of his salvation. He wants people to come to a full understanding of the depth and the width and the breadth and the height of his love for humanity that he gave his all for me. He gave his all on the cross for me. I owe him my everything because he gave his all for me. He's delaying because of his heart for the lost, the broken. He wants more and more swept into the kingdom. And that's why he's holding back because people are still yet to be saved. He said, I want them to come to repentance. The day of the Lord, Peter says, will, will come and take everyone by surprise. And if we are complacent, if we have allowed ourselves to slip into this slumbered mode that, that just says, oh, you know, I don't think the Lord will be back yet. You know, look, 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 we've got to follow the American politics and the, the European Union and we've got to follow the G20 and the G50 and the G1000 and all the stuff that happens. In, on the, you know, and look, the, the son of perdition hasn't really arisen. How do you know? We all think we know who the son of perdition is, but half the time we don't. They all thought it was Henry Kissinger. Is he still alive? I think he's dead and gone. And it's like, but Jesus still hasn't come back. We don't know. And, and if only we would get it, Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. Oh, not even him. Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. But he said it will take everyone by surprise, as unexpected as a home invasion, like a thief in the night. The atmosphere will be set on fire and vanish with a horrific roar. The heavenly bodies will melt away as a tremendous blaze. The earth and every activity of man will be laid bare since all these things are on the verge of being dismantled. Don't you see, Peter says, how vital it is to live a holy life? Don't you see, he said, how vital it is to separate yourself and shift your focus and your eyes on Jesus. You know, on Wednesday night, or Tuesday, yeah, Wednesday night, we met with our connect group leaders and, and Michelle brought a, an encouraging word to our connect group leaders and she referenced uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I think it was, you know, lay aside every, every sin that holds you back and every weight that holds you down. Lay it aside and fixing your eyes on Jesus, run with perseverance the race that is set before you. Don't shift your focus. Don't let the, the complacency that the devil is bringing into the church today cause you to slumber off and, and, and run out of oil and lose that, that, that sense of urgency that the day is near. Don't you see, Peter says, how vital it is to live a holy life. And then he says, we must be consumed with godliness. That sense of separateness, that sense of coming out from among them and being separate, being different, being, being 
righteous because he's righteous. As we fix our eyes on him and we we draw ourselves to him and we get into his presence and allow him to transform us and change, we must be consumed with godliness. You know, when Jesus returns, he's not going to ask me what I did for him. He is not going to ask me what I did for him. Well, Lord, in 2003, we had a great celebration service because I led the charge to renovate the facility in Tudor Street, Hamilton. I don't think he'll be impressed. Church talked for years, Lord, about putting in an elevator. I ended up doing it. It happened on my watch. I don't think he's going to be impressed. I don't think he's going to care. I sold the organ, Lord. <laughs> I did, actually. I sold the organ. <laughs> you think he'd be impressed with that? Uh, well, maybe he'd be impressed with the organ. <laughs> you know. I, you know, when, when he returns, he's not going to ask me what I did for him. He's going he's to ask me one thing. Did you do what I told you to do? That's what he's going to ask us. Did you do what I told you to do? And what is that? It's not your ministry, although it's a part of it. It's not, I want you to become a missionary in China. It, it will be a part of it. You know, the specific that he tells you to go and do, the ministry that he called, will be a part of it. But that's not what he's going to ask us when he returns. What, what Did you do what I told you to do? And, and what is that? Did you allow me to transform you into my image? And that's every one of our calling. Did you allow me to transform you into my image? Did you allow me to get beneath the surface of your soul and deal with the baggage that you have accumulated in this broken world you were born into? Did you allow me to get below the surface of your heart, your your life, into the innermost workings of your innermost being, the insecurities, the the selfish ambition, the fears, the anxieties, the the drivenness to be somebody in life, the, the masks that hide your true self? Did you let me get below the surface and change you back into the image you were created into? Thank you. Jabba. God bless you. <laughs> Have you surrendered your personality to my potter's wheel? Have you surrendered your personality and all its worldly accumulated characteristics that are ultimately not what you were divinely designed to be? We've all heard it. We've all said it. Oh, this is who I am. It's who I was born to be. This is how, you know, how God made me. No, it's not. But I've always been like this. Yeah, because you were born into a broken world. People think their personality traits, the negative ones in particular, well, it's just the way God made me. I'm, I'm, I'm just naturally highly strung. I'm a naturally tense person. God didn't create anybody to be tense or highly strung. He created us to be filled with peace to be filled with joy but but yet so often we will excuse our personality negative traits as well I was born like this you might have been but we're born into a broken world this is how God made me no it's not we were born into brokenness it's not who we are more often than not it's it's the the way this broken world has shaped us 
I have an addictive personality. God did not create anybody to have an addictive personality. It's part of the broken world we were born into. I have no doubt people are born with an addictive personality. People are born with all kinds of deformities, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. But God did not design it that way. It's because of sin. This broken world has produced all of that stuff. And Jesus came to fix that which is broken. He came to put back together that which has been smashed by life. He's come to restore and to rebuild and to heal. Did you allow me to get beneath the surface of your soul and change you into the image of my son? Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus tells us in his word, For whom he foreknew, whom he, Jesus, foreknew, he also predestined. This is our destiny. This is our destiny. You say, what am I destined to do? This is it. If you want to know what God wants to do with your life, this is it. You are predestined by heaven to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brethren, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God, transformed into His image. Hey, this is good preaching. The same verse in the New Living puts it this way, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son, not with their quirky little broken personality traits that they were born with, probably born with, but born because they're born into a broken world. He came to fix that. He came to take our brokenness and put it all back together. This is our primary calling. This is what he is looking for, that our old ways, our worldly developed nature are passing away and that his personality, his nature is permeating our entire personality and character. But when Paul wrote to the Galatian church, he was so disturbed by how Backward they had become. They were doing so well. They were progressing. They were moving forward in their knowledge of God, in their knowledge of the salvation that he purchased for them. He was so excited. But word had come back to Paul that they dropped the ball. Perhaps that same spirit of slumber had blanketed the church in Galatia. And he writes to them. He said, my little children, for whom I am in labor, in birth again, until what? Until Christ is formed in you. That's the destiny we're called to. That we become like Jesus, that we carry his love, his heart, his peace, his goodness, his nature into our life, into our personality. I was reading yesterday the story of Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus, I've got to have a drink. Zacchaeus was known by many as a notorious sinner. His official title was chief tax collector. A man very unliked by his peers, by, by those that he supposed, was supposed to serve but exploited. But we read in Luke chapter 19 that Zacchaeus, this chief tax collector, had a desire to see Jesus. He was a sinner. He was away from God. He was a, he was a ruthless man. He was a conniving man. He, he was a, a schemer. And he was a rich man. The Bible says he was a rich man, but he got rich off exploiting those that he was meant to serve. 
But the Bible says he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. But the trouble with Zacchaeus was he couldn't see Jesus for the crowd. And it says because he was a short man. He was a short man. He probably had small man syndrome. He could not see Jesus. It says that in Luke chapter 19. He wanted to see Jesus, but he could not because of the crowd, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead of the crowd and climbed a tree so that he could see Jesus. And so Jesus comes by. He's in the branch above the crowd, and Jesus stops right below him, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, how do you know who I am? Well, he says, Jesus. He knows everything about everybody. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about all of us. There's nothing he doesn't, nothing is hidden from his sight. And he just stepped up, looked up and said, Zacchaeus, who, who me? There's no one else up here. Yeah, come down, Zacchaeus. I must have dinner with you today. Zacchaeus comes down. The next verse says that all the, the, the religious people began to grumble and complain. He's gone off to have dinner with a notorious sinner. But then the next verse, you know, we don't even know what was discussed at the dinner table. We're not told what Jesus said, whether he gave a sermon, whether it was just small talk. We don't know whether he just ministered to Zacchaeus' heart. We don't know anything. All we read in this passage is that he wanted to see Jesus, so he climbs a tree to see him. He has an encounter with Jesus, and then the very next verse, Zacchaeus stands up and says, Lord, everything I have stolen from people, I will repay four times as much. So if he ripped you off for a thousand bucks, you stood to get four back. And he said, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. Jesus then said these words, truly, salvation has come to this house. We're not told what caused that. But what I see in this, he saw Jesus. And as a result of his eyes being fixed on the Savior, the healer, the one that was commissioned to come and put back together the brokenness of humanity, when he encountered a face-to-face, eye-seeing moment with Jesus, something changed in his life and he was transformed into the man he was meant to be. He was destined to be. He was created to be. And the generosity of God began to flow out of his life. The love of God began to flow out of his life and everything about that man changed. Why? All we're told is he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Says these words, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, what? We shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him. Something happens when you see Jesus. Something happens when your eyes are opened and you have a revelation of who he is. Something happens when you see him as the son of God, as the savior of the world. Something happens. It's spiritual. It's miraculous. It's it's. Godly, it's God ordained. Something happens when we see Jesus. I was also reading yesterday, Genesis chapter 30. I felt the Holy Spirit lead me to this passage where Jacob has, has just served his uncle Laban for seven years for the hand of Rachel. But Laban deceived him 
and gave him the older daughter, Leah, instead. I was always fascinated by this story because it said the next morning when he woke up after the wedding night, he saw that it was Leah, not Rachel. How, how does that happen? How does that happen? It's a cultural thing. It's not weird. It's a cultural thing. She would have been in a veil. No lights permitted. She would have been heavily perfumed. She would have been prepared for the wedding night. So actually, I can get my head around how it could happen. The next morning, as light began to fill the room, good heavens, it's Leah. That would have been a shock and a half. But he'd served seven years for Rachel and he ended up with Leah. So he files his official complaint at the complaints office at Laban's farm and uh, basically says, you've, you've dealt me a wrong deal here. So they strike a new deal and Laban says, serve me another seven years and you can have Rachel. Reality is, uh, uh, Jacob, it's not culturally acceptable to have the younger daughter marry before the older. Well, why didn't you say that in the beginning? So he said, you serve me another seven years, you can have Rachel. So he gave him Rachel and then served another seven years. So 14 years, he ends up now with two wives. He gets two sisters uh, in the deal. And then he finally says in Genesis chapter 30, he says, Laban, it's time for me to leave. It's time for me to go and provide for my own family. He now has 12 kids. And he says, it's time for me to go and establish my own uh, heritage for them, my own uh, purpose for them. It's time for me to provide for my own family. And so he, he uh, says to his uncle Laban, let me go. And, and Laban says, but I know the reason I'm so blessed is because you're here. He was a smart man. My crops have increased. Everything's happened here. And I know it's because you're, you're here. Please don't go. Please stay. Please stay. And he said, what, what, what would your wages be? If you will stay, what, uh, name it. I'll stay, I'll pay you whatever it is you ask. And Jacob says, look, I tell you what, I'll stay. But it was only for a season. He said, I'll stay. But he said, here's my wages. He says, I want to remove every spotted, speckled, and streaked lamb from the sheep and the goats. They will be mine. They were the inferior of the stock. Laban couldn't believe his ears. You serious? You want all the deformed, the, 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 the inferior of the flock? He said, you just let me have all the spotted, the streaked, and the striped. He said, and I, I, that will be my wages. He said, when the time comes to examine the situation, any of my flocks that are not streaked, spotted, or speckled, you will know I've pinched them. And he said, and, and we'll deal with that matter then. But if you see that they're all spotted, speckled, and streaked, then you know that they are rightfully mine. Laban says, yeah, fine. But Laban does the dirty on him and then goes and takes out all the spotted, the speckled, the streaked, gives them to his sons and says, take them three days journey away, separate them from Jacob. So that happens and he takes the sheep away. And so Jacob's basically left now with nothing to separate for himself. But Jacob, the schemer that he is, does this incredible thing. He gets poplar reeds, stalks of branches of trees and bamboo and, and, and uh, marshes and what have you. And he, he cuts stripes in them and speckles in them. And, and he sets them at the watering trough in the front of the eyes of the sheep and the goats where they come to drink. And it was also where they mated. And then the Bible just simply tells us that when they drank there and mated there, as they looked at the spotted, speckled and striped sticks that were there, they produced spotted, speckled and striped offspring. Personally, <laughs> ladies, be careful what you look at when it's mating season. 
You never know what. You'll have a freckled kid like I was. Personally, I don't think it had anything to do with the sticks. I think it was just the miracle of God providing for a man who had been ripped off because God hates injustice. However, there's a spiritual lesson here. What the sheep looked at, they produced. What you look at, what you focus on, you will produce in your life. If you focus upon the negative, if you focus upon the immoral, if you focus upon that which is not godly, that which, you will produce that in your life. What you look as a man thinks in his heart, Proverbs 23 verse 7, so is he. So what you look at, the spiritual principle is, is when you focus on Jesus, you will become like him. When your eyes are fixed on him, you will be transformed into his image. And you know what? You will be the happiest person on earth. We think, oh, I've just, I've just got to get a promotion. I've just got to get another job. I've just got to get more money. I've just got to get a better house. I've just got to up, update the car. I'll be happier if I just have those things. No, you will be much happier if you're transformed into the image of Jesus because he's the prince of peace and peace will permeate every part of your life. Joy will fill every fiber of your being. A sense of purpose and destiny and, and indestructibility will fill your life when Jesus is filling every part of your being and that happens when you're focused on him. When you see him. David wrote Psalm 17. And it's a psalm that talks about the fullness of salvation. And David's writing in the context of his day, his challenges, the storms that he faced, the enemies he was fighting. And he's talking and declaring into the atmosphere around his life the, the faithfulness of God, the strength of God, the ability of God towards him as he follows hard after God. And he talks about the enemy and the nature and the characteristics of the enemy and, and what they're like. But he closes the psalm with these powerful words, verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness and I shall be satisfied when I awake in your When I see your face, I will be changed into your likeness. Our opening passage, John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. I don't know whether they ever saw Jesus or not. We're not told. It just moves on. Jesus just talks about his purpose, his calling, his destiny. He continues to develop and prepare his disciples for that moment. And we never learn another thing about what happened with these men. But what we do learn from this is they had the right focus. When you come to church, are you looking to be entertained? Are you looking for great music? Are you looking for flashy lights? Are you looking for a good atmosphere, or are you looking for Jesus? If you don't go home from church more in love with Jesus, more connected to Jesus, I failed. It's all about Jesus. My, my job is not to grow a big church. My job is to point people to Jesus. My job is to connect people to Jesus. My job is to help people see Jesus. Because it's only him that carries the words of eternal life. It's only him that can heal. It's only him that can restore.
We're going to come around the communion table right now and just going to ask the ushers here if you could begin to distribute the emblems. I was talking to Margot this morning as we were getting ready to come in for church and for Christmas from Margot, I, I got a vegetable garden. People give me a hard time because I bought her a doorbell one Christmas. I got a garden. But it was two garden beds that I got from Bunnings that are above ground garden beds. They're, they're corrugated, uh, what do they call that? Iron that's like, what's the fence made out of? Colourbond. It's that type of thing, Colourbond. And uh, they fitted together quite easily and they're, they're probably about that high off the ground. And my friend Alan down the back there, Alan Cockrell, delivered me some high quality soil. I got carrots like this. But, um, <laughs> because uh, Alan works at a place that he can get soil from and he, he delivered me some high quality soil and, and I planted some cos lettuce and I planted silver beet and I planted tomato plants and uh, basil and parsley and rocket um, and, and there was a couple of hot days. You can start to di- distribute those, that would be great, thanks. There was a couple of hot days and, and I noticed that the little tiny lettuce seedlings were wilting and they were laying flat on the ground. So I'd run out in the heat of the day with a little watering can and just gently trickle the water around the plants. And by the end of the night, they were standing up again. And then the next day, it was hot again and then they'd wilt again. So I'd go out. I must have gone out sometimes two or three times in the day and I would just, like a mother caring for her young, just pouring the little water. And I think Margot was just watching me thinking, are you serious? You know? And I'm pouring this little bit of water around every little plant and they kept standing up. They kept standing up. And then I'd get a little bit of fertilizer and gently around the outside, just, just scratch it into the dirt and then water it in. And, and I did that. And then eventually they survived and they started to take off. Yesterday, now, now honestly, I, I've, got, I've got silver beet leaves that are like that, that high like that, huge big green leaves. And yesterday's heat, we were out a lot and, and I came back and I thought my garden is going to be just all wilted. You know, I walked out this morning expecting to see them all keeled over in that intense heat. They were all standing up straight. And I went and I said to Margot, I said, you should see my garden. I said, it's lush. They're all it's green. That none of them are burnt. None of them have have wilted. They've all stood up. And I didn't water them yesterday because you can only water every second day for fifteen minutes with a trigger nozzle. You know that, don't you? And you can only have a thirty second shower. That's why it smells a bit in here this morning. It's just a. And I said to Margot, I said, you know, they're all standing up strong. And she said an interesting thing to me. She said, you know, there's a spiritual principle in that. What you tend survives. She said, you've nurtured those plants, you've, you've looked after those plants, you've cared for those plants, and they survived the intensity when the heat came. Are you nurturing your soul? Are you nurturing your inner life? Are you focused on Jesus? Are you, are you surrendered to Jesus? Are you trusting that if I put him first, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life? Blessing and increase will follow me all the days of my life. And I don't believe blessing and increase is just money. 
It's having a prosperous soul. It's being able to smile when you've got nothing. And I think Jesus wants us to go through seasons where we've got nothing. So we learn that in him, we have everything. Everything. 